welcome to today's episode of the Miso TV podcast. Today we sit down with Dr. Chuang Hong, a thoracic surgical oncologist at the National Cancer Institute. We speak to him about a new hydrogel-based therapy for mesothelioma that he has helped develop and that was just recently published in the Journal of Nature Nanotechnology. Miso TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, The Gory Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkoten. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more. So, Dr. Hung, thank you so much for being willing to uh, join us for another episode of Miso TV. Um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the years. Um, you're at the National Institute of Health, and you know I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about the National Institute of Health and with a particular focus on the thoracic oncology surgical group. Yeah, um, so Mary, thank you so much. I appreciate being invited to this uh, format and forum. It's a very unique um, kind of um, modality for outreach to both scientists and um, uh, patients alike. So it's, it's truly a unique venue and I, I appreciate being here. Um, so with the NIH, um, you know, as we were talking in our, our preamble, uh, it's, a, it's an unusual um, and very unique place to both practice medicine um, and test out the boundaries of, of where medicine can go via uh, both basic and translational uh, clinical type research. Um, and that being said, uh, you know, thoracic uh, surgery as a discipline um, uh, serves a wide uh, kind of a wide community here at, um, uh, within the National Cancer Institute. Um, because as you know, many tumors um, uh, that are treated here are in an advanced stage setting, and that most often involves or, or cross paths through the thoracic cavity, uh, wherein by um, there's a general kind of ongoing uh, community uh, level need for uh, thoracic surgery and thoracic surgeons. Um, so I feel like um, uh, from a broad sense, uh, thoracic surgeons here contribute a lot to just the overall community uh, and atmosphere of the National Cancer Institute. Um, and as I mentioned to you earlier, um, as of uh, 2018, we have recently reorganized into, our, uh, into a dedicated thoracic surgery branch, um, solely focused on thoracic oncology uh, tumors and problems um, uh, you know, in, in, in that field. And, um, Right now, uh, with, the new, with the new group, uh, we're headed by uh, David Trump, who's the chief of the thoracic surgery branch. Um, I serve as a, uh, uh, one of the principal investigators uh, within the branch. And then we have a, a more junior person at a, um, uh, a clinician scientist, uh, early, early stage um, of their career development, Dr. Seamus Carr. And so that's the current group right now that comprises um, the thoracic surgery service uh, within the NCI. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess, you know, we're all very familiar with the university setting. So 
how, what is the role of the surgeon uh, at the NIH and how does that compare to being a surgeon at a university setting? Is it similar? Is it different, the same? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, from, um, from my experience being out in academia, um, it's, ex uh, it's entirely different the way that we practice here. Um, uh, we're not dealing with, um, you know, uh, the, the medical infrastructure and trying to push patients through in terms of, um, you know, more of a business-based model. Uh, here, it's strictly devoted to uh, answering and tackling cancer-related questions um, and trying to solve uh, long-standing uh, clinical bottlenecks in terms of, you know, limitations in treatment, uh, poor outcomes for, for cancer types, uh, of which there are many in uh, the world of thoracic oncology. And so we work closely with many of the other uh, clinical groups and the unique unifying feature of being at the NIH is that everybody here who's doing uh, clinical work is doing it from the perspective of a research, um, uh, a research objective, trying to answer a question, solve a problem, improve a, uh, upon a process uh, that is related to cancer biology. And so um, one of the major differences in, in the way that we practice is that we're working as a multidisciplinary team with other non-surgeon uh, clinicians um, who, who are also very dedicated to um, a particular cancer type of problem. And um, uh, that working environment is entirely different than what I'm used to. Um, it all plays out in real time in the form of um, uh, structured clinical trial. Uh, of which there are many ongoing here, uh, both within our branch and throughout the NIH uh, as a whole. And I guess also another difference would be is that you're not uh, constrained by insurance, um, that, you know, any test or anything that you think is reasonable and needs to be performed to investigate a patient, you're able to do, um, and you have almost every service available at the NIH to be able to do, you know, the te intricate testing that needs to be done. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the, um, you know, least known um, kind of facts, you know, that, uh, that is intrinsic in how patients come through, um, you know, the NIH on, on a clinical protocol is that if anybody from the outside qualifies for a particular uh, intervention or research protocol or has a, a, a unique tumor type that's being actively studied, um, everything is actually um, uh, paid for and the constraints of, you know, uh, Medicare and insurance and, and all these other logistics that uh, I think often, too, too often hamper, um, you know, efficient um, uh, care of cancer patients, uh, we don't have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis here at NIH. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, the whole world of research sometimes sounds scary to a patient. Um, are you experimenting on me? Am I going to go to the NIH and am I going to have the, that, that standard surgery that I've heard so much about? So um, could you talk a little bit about maybe the different approaches and also how it all sort of melds together? Yeah, well, um, uh, once... Um, once we reach like a clinical protocol or, um, you know, a first in human or uh, 
uh, an early phase one type uh, clinical trial, um, there's been a lot of background research, um, you know, in the lab that has, you know, uh, uh, determined and identified uh, safety and efficacy endpoints uh, before we get to that stage. So while um, in early stage clinical trials that we often do uh, here at NIH, um, you know, we're, we are by definition experimenting um, to, to identify, um, you know, the utility of a new drug, the, the, the efficiency of a new methodology, um, you know, towards a, a problem, um, a lot of the safety has been built in and tested in, in preclinical testing and benchtop uh, research. Um, so while there is that kind of ongoing element, um, all of the clinicians and scientists here are dedicated to um, in real time work with the patients uh, to identify any potential, you know, uh, safety issues um, and, and be able to navigate them through that. And it's with that kind of unique focus that we're able to kind of, you know, truly be able to answer those questions that need to be answered in, in really, um, in, a, in an environment where we, we otherwise may not be able to do so as efficiently. Thank you. So I guess if we looked at a standard pleurectomy decortication, which, you know, most mesothelioma patients are familiar with that terminology, you would be using that standard approach probably with something additive, something to see if uh, there's a synergy either between a new uh, medication or perhaps a different technique, but they would still have that standard of care plus, plus or minus. Am uh, I correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and what you're referring to um, that uh, always adhering to uh, or incorporating that standard of care into, um, you know, experimental trials is um, what I, what, or what, what, what I've heard we term a lot is a window of trial or a window of opportunity trial. And um, those are, are um, very characteristic of a lot of the trials that we try to run here, particularly in the thoracic surgery branch. Um, because with this particular, for instance, and, and obviously mesothelioma is the focus, with that particular tumor, there's, you know, there's been um, very difficult treatment options. Um, many, many different types of multimodality strategies have been tried out. And again, um, without uh, putting the patient at undue risk, um, using a window of opportunity um, study design is often the most efficient to be able to quickly assess the re relative efficacy and relative benefit of any kind of new, um, uh, new therapeutic agent or new strategy uh, uh, along the way with standard of care to give them the best chance both for short-term good outcomes and potential long-term um, uh, outcome gains. So the window of opportunity trials are usually trials that are introducing a new agent prior to the surgical procedure uh, to see if it has an impact of the disease, as well as allowing you to do some pharmacokinetic study to see how that drug reacts, you know, in a patient, and does it indeed, you know, uh, improve the outcome of a surgery of surgical procedure? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I. I Thank you. So I, I guess this leads me into, you know, wondering about um, some, of, some of what's coming out of your lab um, and the lab of people that you're working with. Um, you know, are there applications in the clinical setting now or 
Are you working on some things that you think will have an impact on the future of mesothelioma treatment? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I um, uh, want to take the time to uh, introduce to you today. So in, in our lab, um, one of the big questions that, that I've started uh, kind of, you know, back at, uh, back at the drawing table is how to improve uh, surgery as a therapeutic modality for pleural mesothelioma. And traditionally, the biggest bottleneck with um, a pleurectomy decortication or an extrapleural pleural so surgical intervention for mesothelioma in the chest, um, has always been uh, the limiting factor of, of um, not being able to complete a, a complete um, tumor removal. And so um, a lot of the patients uh, within uh, the mesothelioma world are very familiar with the, with the idea of macroscopic complete resection, where basically the surgeon is tasked uh, with removing all gross visible disease during surgery. And inevitably, the Achilles heel of that, um, you know, time-honored uh, approach to mesothelioma surgery is that we end up leaving uh, small bits of tumor, uh, microscopic deposits, uh, invisible in to the naked eye behind in, in the patient. And then ultimately, for, for a large um, group of patients that undergo uh, surgery as a, as a treatment intervention, um, there's a high, a high recurrence uh, incidence and the tumor comes back and often it comes back and it's, it's more aggressive and very, very difficult to treat and results in a poor outcome. So um, one of the major projects in my lab has been how to improve upon that. And over the years, there's been uh, several um, uh, strategies uh, applied to May, uh, trying to improve the effects of surgery. And so in terms of surgical adjuvants or those um, additional treatments that we add on to surgery uh, to try and improve the, the, the long-term durability of, of uh, a macroscopic complete resection um, has also unfortunately not been highly successful. Um, the most common uh, that I'm sure a lot of the patients in the community are aware of is where the, um, after a surgery, immediately uh, after a surgery, the surgeon will instill um, chemotherapeutic liquid and then oftentimes heat it up to a, a higher temperature. And so heated intraoperative chemotherapy um, is one of the most uh, well-known uh, surgical adjuvants that have been added on um, to try and increase the durability of surgery. And that unfortunately is not really um, uh, you know, resulted in consistent results across surgical groups over the years, and it's, it still remains an unproven um, uh, therapeutic uh, strategy. So in our lab, recently what we've done um, is uh, make what, we, what, what I would uh, contend is a, a small breakthrough in improving the, potentially improving the durability of surgery someday. And um, one of the biggest limitations of any sort of surgical adjuvant is being able to specifically treat the tumors that uh, are left behind. And uh, to address that problem, what we've done as a, uh, as a translational uh, research step is we've developed a, um, basically a, a, a thin film biodegradable um, uh, medicated spray 
if you will, that can be applied to the chest, very similar in, in similar fashion and sequence to heated intraoperative chemotherapy. But the major difference in this, um, in, in the sprayable thin film is that we um, are able to engineer it to specifically contain uh, unique um, anti-cancer drugs. And we can use the chemical structure of, the, of these nanoparticles um, that are embedded in the, in the thin film spray to actually specifically target mesothelioma tumor uh, as opposed to normal tissue. And um, this concept, uh, we've been able to demonstrate in, in uh, small animal studies and with very impressive results uh, that resulted in the um, recent publication in Nature Nanotechnology, um, one of the preeminent um, biomedical journals in the world of, of nanotechnology. Um, and it's been very, very well received. Um, and what I hope to do uh, someday is translate and bring this uh, thin film biodegradable spray uh, as, a, as a therapeutic strategy um, to the clinic and, and hopefully be able to you know, roll it out in, in human testing here at the NIH someday. So does this, uh, does this spray have an affinity for mesothelin um, and that's why it targets uh, mesothelioma or is there some other target or some other way that the nanotubes are, you know, entering into those mesothelioma cells? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Mary. And, and only, uh, well, so, somebody is, uh, with as deep of an experience as you um, would be able to ask that question. So beyond mesothelin, which is a, a cell surface marker, uh, both on mesothelioma and then uh, unfortunately also on normal cells, um, the nature of our uh, tumor uh, targeting is actually entirely different. So um, this, this thin film spray actually um, is engineered to actually stick a little bit tighter to cancer cells as opposed to normal cells. And all mm -hmm. cancer cells have a property that distinguish them from their normal um, cell and, and environment by um, on the cell surface, most cancer cells carry a, uh, a net negative charge. And so the thin film spray that we engineered is positively charged. And so it's simply um, um, uh, a strategy of relative, uh, quote unquote, magnetic attraction that allows our, our gel, um, the, the thin, thin film sprayable gel, to stick a little bit tighter, specifically where the cancer cells are, because they're highly uh, negatively charged at the surface. And the nanoparticles that we embed in this sprayable uh, thin film uh, gel uh, are oppositely charged. So they're positive charged nanoparticles. And so when they get released from the gel, they will automatically um, or naturally attract to a negative surface, which is the cancer cell. And we've shown in detailed uh, mechanistic experiments in the lab that uh, this specific targeting of cancer cells, we can, we can drop off a large amount of drug into the cancer cell and not so much into uh, the surrounding normal environment. Um, so that's, that's one major layer of how we're able to achieve 
targeting the cancer cell. And the other thing uh, that's unique about our strategy is that um, unlike other traditional approaches that uh, rely on uh, chemotherapeutic drugs as, uh, as a treatment, um, our lab has specific interest in uh, using nucleic acids, small bits of uh, nuclear um, material, genetic material, as the actual uh, cancer drug. So it's an entirely new class of um, uh, drug therapy. Uh, and these short bits of nucleic acid uh, are termed microRNA. Um, they are part of uh, normal cells and they're part of cancer cells. And we found that uh, cancer cells change their, uh, preferentially change their microRNA uh, signature for growth advantage. And so in a reverse engineering uh, kind of concept, we can identify particular microRNAs that are toxic to cancer cells, but non-toxic to normal cells. And so that's a second layer of, of safety and uh, specificity that we build into uh, this therapeutic platform that we've, we've designed with a sprayable uh, thin film gel. So, so the microRNA um, in and of themselves, if they inadvertently get into a normal cell, they're not as toxic uh, to the normal cell, but they're highly toxic to the cancer cell. So the use of these two um, uh, uh, biologic uh, mechanisms, if you will, combined into a single product um, allows us to achieve uh, re remarkable um, uh, capability to specifically target uh, the tumor as opposed to normal tissue. Um, and in, 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 the, in the preliminary data that we've generated in the mice, um, you know, you can deliver a large amount of microRNA to, to normal, normal tissue and the mouse seems fine, doesn't really get too sick. And in a mouse that's uh, harboring a mesothelioma tumor and you deliver the same gel, um, you, you get significant amount of tumor shrinkage um, and, and that translates to improved survival of the mice group that get treated um, uh, with our product. Thank you. So um, a question for you then is, um, you know, you've, you've moved this into the mouse model. So what, what are the next steps? How, you know, how do these trials, how do you build on this to eventually have a clinical trial that patients uh, will be able to enroll in? What are the steps? Yeah, well, so the, the next big steps is um, probably we will need to uh, reproduce um, these results in a larger uh, or intermediate animal model. Um, and then based on some of that data, then uh, that would be kind of the, the next step after that would be, you know, approaching the FDA um, to show them our data, the safety and toxicity profile of the product. Um, and then to get some sort of decision in terms of, you know, do they think it would be safe um, uh, to, to then start in-human in trial testing. Um, some of the other nuts and bolts would be, you know, we have to figure out how to manufacture both the, um, the, the, the gel itself and then also manufacture large-scale uh, large quantities of the microRNA, which are actually the drug uh, being used in, in our particular strategy. Um, these second two um, kind of um, requirements are more of a, a chemistry manufacturing kind of issue. Um, and it's really establishing the, the safety and toxicity profile 
uh, in a probably an intermediate animal model that will help convince the FDA that, that you know, this will be safe to test in humans. Um, all of that being said, there is uh, precedent for using microRNA as an anti-cancer drug in humans. Um, there's a group out of Australia that has uh, demonstrated the, the first inhuman kind of proof of concept of this already, uh, where they use the systemic delivery approach um, via the bloodstream to um, deliver microRNA uh, in order to try and treat mesothelioma. Uh, and they demonstrated great safety uh, profile in, in that initial study. And, and as far as I'm um, uh, aware of, in Australia, they're trying to move that to, you know, a phase two uh, level setting uh, for, for human testing. So we're, we're very optimistic that, you know, some of the technical hurdles to um, uh, uh, verify our, our particular product and stra uh, treatment strategy um, you know, the, so some of those, um, uh, some of those hurdles have already been cleared by others and that we, we, we would be optimistic that we would be not facing a, um, a long time to, to reach human testing. Thank you. So, you know, this all sounds exciting and uh, certainly we'll be following along with this research. So, you know, for the current patient, uh, you know, patient who find themselves newly diagnosed with mesothelioma, uh, has been told perhaps they're a surgical candidate. Um, what is your approach to that patient today with the tools you currently have? Yeah, so um, so right now, in addition, so what, what I just talked about, uh, hopefully uh, not, not too far off in the future, um, but currently uh, within the thoracic surgery branch, we have a, a several active um, uh, clinical trials uh, for patients that um, uh, may be eligible for uh, surgery for mesothelioma, and we also have some trials that are uh, for the very advanced stage uh, uh, not eligible for surgery trial as well. Um, in particular, we're trying out some uh, epigenetic drugs uh, that, that may uh, offer added benefit to current um, uh, chemotherapy standards um, in the treatment. And uh, those are being run by Dr. Shrump as the principal investigator right now. Um, we're also looking into um, the subgroup of folks with um, uh, the BAP1 uh, uh, genetic uh, uh, mutation that run in families. And right now, we're in the early, uh, in the early kind of uh, discovery phase of um, collecting patients that fit that profile um, to derive uh, gene signatures that may help inform certain um, uh, drugs uh, may be more effective in terms of folks with a specific uh, BAP1 mutation versus mm -hmm. those that are not. Um, so even though, um, you know, today we're talking about uh, the future, uh, there are current uh, trials that are actively ongoing right now in recruiting patients. Thank you. So, um, you know, people, people travel, you know, from, you know, many different countries as well as the United States. So, when they come to the NIH, what type of support systems are in place in terms of housing, costs, travel? Oh, well, um, and now I wish I had uh, the rest of our uh, uh, thoracic nursing team here uh, to really kind of drive that mm -hmm. point home. They're, they're much more eloquent at expressing that. But the, um, the lodging, the travel, there's, there's additional 
um, uh, psychiatric, psychological, and uh, social uh, family support uh, that all are part of the large NIH infrastructure here. So for those um, you know, traveling as far as a, a neighboring state, those that are traveling cross country or um, across uh, international borders, um, all of these services are integrated and currently available to everybody at NIH. Thank you. So Dr. Holm, this has been um, fascinating. Um, your work certainly uh, is, you know, I hope will translate to improved survivals and, you know, better patient outcomes. And, you know, we appreciate, you know, any science, you know, scientist, clinician who is, you know, really dedicating their career to this disease. So thank you for staying with this disease and really pushing the envelope forward. It's uh, much appreciated by this community. Um, is there anything before we conclude that we didn't discuss that you want to bring up or? Uh, no, and uh, I, I will make one plug for you, Mary. Um, the, the, this foundation, um, I'll remind you a long time ago, uh, we first yeah. met when I was the recipient of one of the research foundation awards uh, that funded a lot of the original groundwork for my interest in microRNA as an anti-cancer therapeutic. And so I just want to let you know, uh, you know, without the foundation's early support, um, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking about, uh, you know, this, this potentially new product that we're, we're going to be able to test in humans in a few short years. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, uh, you know, bringing that up. So, Dr. Hung, have a, you know, good afternoon. Um, certainly, I look forward to continuing to speak with you and. Um, the foundation will follow your work, and we wish you great success. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thank you very much.